Today I'm talking with Josh Neal. And Josh, you're a therapist in private practice in the Seattle area. And you contacted me a few months back and we've we've spoken once before, but we haven't this is our first time recording together. And you wanted to share some observations and experiences around ideological capture. I'm really I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to talk about. I know the area is really a difficult area to practice. Um, it was where I started my counseling training and where I got my first dose of of really realizing how different this field is from what I was expecting, from what classical training would have given me. Uh, you know, my when I was an undergrad studying psychology, we were learning one way. When I got to graduate school, it so much had been supplanted by this race and gender ideology and this new way of thinking about things that it just seemed like a, an entirely different field. So um, I would love to hear more about you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what got you interested in studying psychology? Yeah, um, I my background, just childhood and, and things like that. I grew up uh, in moving around. My parents split when I was four and uh I think my interest in psychology came from just difficulty in childhood, moving around a lot and trying to figure out how the world works, how people interact. So I've always had like a strong interest in, in people. Um, like many that come to the profession, I sought it out for kind of trying to understand the world and understand myself, my emotions, my experiences. Um, I was raised in the LDS faith and uh i kind of had a what we would call a faith transition or a faith mm. crisis some kind of like identity existential um thing and as a result of that experience which was very painful um it became i've gotten better at i guess being willing to be different and being willing to kind of like um speak out against what I might see as like a mainstream perspective or not even necessarily a mainstream, but an in-group perspective would probably be a better way of putting it because it doesn't have to be um, huge for it to be your in-group. And so speaking out against an in-group um, can be difficult and come with a much more consequences than railing against the out-group mm -hmm. from within. And, uh, and so then I, you know, my education, I was in Utah Valley University, uh, and then I came to Seattle U and studied here. I, I had stayed in the Mormon faith until, I don't know, like really in grad school is when I started to kind of come out of it. Uh, but I had served a Mormon mission in the Tacoma area. And so I knew the Northwest. So that's kind of what drove me to be interested in coming back. And I, I really was interested in uh, the humanistic perspective of psychology. And so my study and my background in my master's degree was at Seattle University. And the program is the phenomenal phenomenological existential uh, psychology program. And it certifies people for uh, counseling in the state of Washington. I think now they're moving to do KCREP or become nationally certified as a counseling school. At the time, they didn't do that. It was just for Washington. And so what as a result of that, we got a really rich education in uh, philosophy. And one of the key things that they takeaways that I had from the program that I really loved was 
first, it was deeply rooted in a humanistic perspective, which held that all humans have dignity and value and worth. Um, and it also pushed back on some of the more classical models of psychology that were that the therapist knows something more about you than you know, that they come as kind of a top-down view, and um, that you, the other uh, model, that's kind of the earlier psychoanalytic models that were, I'm going to interpret you, I'm going to listen, and I'm going to tell you what's wrong as the professional on you. And then we move from that to the model of behaviorism, which is more kind of looking at people as kind of a sophisticated machine. That shows up in today's ideological framework as people being considered like advanced computers, uh, which we are not. Mm -hmm. um, and in the advent of AI, it's getting even more blurred. But uh, that model that I studied from really prioritized some of the features um, of the human experience that uh, existential philosophers draw on, which is that we experience our existence and this the experiencing of our existence, the subjective nature of it, or metaphysics, is itself central to the project of psychology and psychotherapy, because we have to acknowledge that unlike a machine, a human experiences itself, and a human experiences reality, and it has a way of organizing and making meaning about reality that must be part of our analysis of the human experience. And if we just look at inputs, outputs from a purely behaviorist view, which became more popular in the 50s, uh, we're missing something. Mm -hmm. And so it's considered third wave um, psychology, which is the humanistic approach. Um, and that kind of fundamental uh, stance leads you to look at what we would say is um, an underlying philosophical groundwork for anyone that is approaching psychotherapy and look at the fact that they also are a human that is organizing and making meaning about what they're telling you the psychotherapy is. So what this does is it allows you to look at the project from outside and see it as a human endeavor with qualities and traits. What is essential about that is it allows the project to be critiqued, to be questioned, to be explored, and therefore improve. I think of psychotherapy or any of these projects kind of like your skeleton. And your skeleton is always taking away parts and rebuilding itself. And if you don't do that, then you get brittle, you get rigid, and you break. And um, here, I'm going to let my body out. <laughs> uh, so, so these are the things that I value in psychotherapy. They're deeply important to me. They're deeply important to the project. And then um, kind of where I was leading as well is this idea that I'm really interested in critiquing within an in-group and looking at what the people inside are doing and that I'm willing to step away from something if I find that it's essentially modeling what I would call a toxic relationship. And a toxic relationship can happen between yourself and yourself. It can happen between you and a romantic partner. It can happen between you and your family. It can happen between you and your community. And it can happen with larger, broader society that's basically... Um, making certain things unquestionable, creating dogma and dogma, in my opinion, when it enshrines itself from critique by making the critique uh, a sin itself. And we call that heresy. So mm -hmm. to question the church is heresy, to question God, there are questions that are taboo. And as I began to practice and develop, I noticed, you know, if you can give somebody a cloak of uncritiquableness of any kind that that will attract the worst people because mm -hmm. they will they will want to put that on we see this in um 
most organized religions will have at their top some kind of pedophilia going on, it seems. <laughs> it just seems like that's happening all the time. And why? It's because a person can become unquestionable. They can become insulated from critique, and then they become rigid, calcified, etc. So I've always seen it as a human project to for people that I think exhibit narcissistic, abusive, toxic antisocial behaviors, that they'll be very attracted to something that removes them personally from any self-reflection, any critique, and sets up an ideological stance where even questioning them is a sin. And I saw this in Mormonism, and uh, I'm extremely sensitive to that. And again, you know, as I've talked about my background in my education, those were the things that drew me to it, is it was very parallel. It looked at each person with this extreme sense of dignity. It looked at the it was willing to name the stance and the philosophy that undergirds the project of psychotherapy explicitly so that it can be questioned, so that it can be investigated, so that it creates um, equanimity and a, and a level of respect for other humans to come and explore, have open dialogue. I consider myself classically liberal in the sense that I value multiple perspectives, but I value at the base of those um, a culture of respectfulness that lets everyone come in with any question they have and there's no wrong question there's no wrong person um and so this is kind of my basis this is kind of how i i form this is how i like to practice and i found a model of applying that through gestalt therapy which is very important to me to this day it's how i practice it's um i think it's a deeply respectful um, way of engaging humans. It looks at their process. It looks at how they're doing things. And it invites the therapist to be able to show up fully as themselves with their own integrated value set um, in, to connect to a person. Um, but what I've kind of seen more and more as uh, kind of postmodernism has crept in is that there is you know, there's these different people that are talking about this and probably talking about it much better than me um, that you can find on Twitter, et cetera. But essentially looking at how this is kind of operating from a place of what I would say is like an abusive relationship, meaning the way that the, the ideology functions is not to have the kind of respectful dialogue, but it's to gain control. And I always just keep it simple. It's the goal is control. They want to control how we think about psychotherapy. They want to control behavior. They want to control how we think about what a human being is. They want to define how we think about competence and skill, and they frame them in certain ways. And then they build methods of, if you question any of these um, these narratives that they put forward, that itself is a sin. Well, I mean, we've just got the Catholic Church again here from you know Spanish Inquisition times, which is we say what's real and you questioning it is a sin. And so these are just simple things that I think I've been able to organize in my own way to look at this from my perspective as a humanist and um, an existentialist and phenomenologist and also a person who's grown up in a high demand religion that was very... Uh, you know, in a way, Mormonism, yeah, I, they call themselves LDS now, um, LDS people or the LDS faith, it's very much um, kind of friendly in a way. And I've, I, and, and, and yet it, it is rigid and it, it 
make certain that only certain people get to say what's true and questioning that is a sin. So these are some of the core pillars that I, I think we can see in a toxic relationship. We call it gaslighting. I get to define reality. My, my reality is prime. Yours is secondary to this. And then we can see it in a culture, but we can see it in these broader ideologies. And for me, that's just the core issue. So this happens to be playing out um, <laughs> um, in a way that is, uh, it happens to have this current flavor, but I'm not interested in the flavor, except that it happens to be the current flavor, but I don't have any interest. Like, and I think it, it's, it's worth noting, like, you know, in the United States Congress, they'll pass a bill called like the freedom bill that's taking away all your freedoms or they'll, they'll do these things and they, they brand them in names so that it becomes very unpopular to, to oppose them. Mm -hmm. They'll be like the happy good person bill. And you're, they're like, why don't you want the happy good person bill to go forward? And so, so like it makes it even harder. It's, it's how they create the heresy. Right. And so you spend all of your time on the defense when you're saying like, yeah, I think that, you know, feminism is inherently degrading and humiliating men and it's destroying pair bonding and it's meant to degrade the, the nature of the human beings that exist based on their uh, obvious behavioral traits due to um, hormones. And even people who are trans are going to admit that their behavior switched radically once they got the different hormones. And yet, if we try to talk about this, you're sitting on the back foot defending yourself being like, I don't hate anybody. I don't hate anybody. And you're spending all your time doing that. It's a great strategy. Mm -hmm. And so the thing that, you know, I kind of laid out in the earlier discussion of this is, uh, I, I have a value of being able to always remain in with the dignity and the right to have a culture that discusses things with critique, with questions, with openness, and there's no idea that's off the table to discuss. Um, and I'm putting forward that I think the current ideological framework does not operate in any kind of authenticity or sincerity, but that it actually has only one goal in mind, and that is to use any and every bit of another person's empathy to overcome, to prevail, to dominate, to control, to take over, and to implant themselves as the only singular voice of totalitarian authority and that good faith conversations are naive in the sense that they don't look at the larger operating function and process of the entity that you're interacting with. And it is an entity that seeks total domination and control. And they wish to strip you of your inherent human dignity and in instead implant shame, um, uh, sin and a core of, of inherent badness. And from there change behavior and the whole way that you frame yourself and your interaction. So that's a lot for me. I don't know. <laughs> um, that's just, yeah. So I can probably take a pause here and we can check in on what I'm talking about. Yeah. It sounds like your, um, your early experience with breaking out of your, your faith that you came from at, at some point you became aware of it, of this, inability you're describing this pattern of toxicity if you will the behavior when you say it could be a relationship within oneself a relationship within a couple and then expanding outward so at scale the same sort of rigid controlling as you called it toxicity can manifest and so you're saying that when you're trying to engage with that in good faith you end up on the back foot you end up doing a lot of um 
uh, unnecessary self-explaining instead of just calling out the process as you see it. Yeah, and it's you an were in, aware yeah. of the process because you'd seen it previously, and then you started to see it here as well. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good summary. And I would say what I'm inviting people to do is to look at the process of how someone's interacting with them. Mm -hmm. And when someone's only goal is to prevail over you with their view of reality, then you're not in a respectful dialogue anymore. You're in mm -hmm. something else. And when their inherent view of reality strips you of your human dignity based on what other people have done, you're basically creating neo-original sin. And it's the same wheel. It's a great wheel. It's the wheel that works. And there's no other wheel. It's, And you can look at, you know, people study the cultural revolution in China, and we can look at the Catholic Church in the early days, and we can look at modern cults and how they function. We can look at abusive relationships, and we in between romantic partners specifically. And you can see a certain set of behaviors that are what um, people call instrumental relating instead of authentic relating, meaning that the way of relating is there to achieve an end instrumentally. It's not there yeah. to have an authentic connection. And I think one of the biggest problems with uh, open-minded, liberal-leaning, um, loving people is that their inherent sense of wanting to take people at good faith has been weaponized against them because it's naive. It's actually mm -hmm. entering the world very naively, and it's not appreciating the degree of which someone can hold you in contempt and be extremely willing to interact with you completely objectively for their own means. And if you don't have a way to detect whether or not that's happening, you're going to naively place yourself in conversations where you're being completely manipulated and uh, and controlled. And this kind of functional totalitarian one world view of defining what the human being is as a um, parasite on the earth, as a uh, all power is only about tyrannical um, oppression rather than looking at the human as a cooperative loving being that wants to be interested in each other and also making certain racial and um and sex-based uh things like if you are male then you are toxic by nature if you are white you are um oppressive by nature and this kind of conversations just moving more and more forward and it doesn't interface in a they're not coming at it from the dialogue. They're coming at it from potentially, at least as I see it, um, a kind of conversation which says, I am cloaked in virtue and my virtue comes from having been oppressed by you and therefore everything I do is righteous and everything you do is evil. Mm -hmm. And this is just very simply functional um, narcissism. It says, I am all good and you are all bad mm -hmm. and everything I do is justified and everything you do is wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's very, and so I, I guess I'm just, today, it's interesting for me to look at what I what I see here and have a dialogue with anybody who would want to actually have a, a real dialogue and say, I'm seeing these things function this way. I saw these things function this way in Mormonism. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing the kind of conversation unfold that looks like a instrumental way of totally dominating a person by stripping out their core dignity, putting in its place shame and guilt, and then taking things from them and actually doing all of the things you say that the other is doing is actually your goal to do. You're not actually becoming competent and skilled and doing a thing. You're looking to, with total domination, take power and and become a tyrant. And, and you're calling other people a tyrant in that place. 
Well, and it's explicitly instrumental. I mean, it explicitly in my yeah, in graduate their, program in their taught to look at people this way. Your clients right. are a clinical opportunity. Yeah. In order to shape culture. You're right. an activist as a counselor. Right. You're shaping culture. Right. You are a change agent. And so right. it's it's explicitly instrumental. And I've always had a problem with the circular nature of this, where it's why is racism wrong? Because it treats people, it's dehumanizing and it treats people as less than um, less valuable than other people. So we're going to treat you as less valuable than other people in order to impress upon you the wrong that you have done to others. So it's this very circular sort of thing that doesn't have, as you say, human dignity as its as its centerpiece. Yeah. And, it, you know, this brings up another point that I always found really interesting is it, it actually, if it has one at all, it doesn't, it's not able to explicitly discuss it, which is some kind of ethos of what is a good life. Yeah. Because it it there's some fundamental flaws in this. And I've I've read Eric Fromm's book, The Art of Loving, and he talks about some of these concepts of we don't achieve, we don't get through the problem of separateness by becoming the same. We get through the problem of separateness by becoming one, which is to realize that we are already in some kind of existential sense one and we are different. And that the difference doesn't mean superiority, although it can. For example, I am superior in lifting a certain amount of weight than somebody who cannot lift that. There mm -hmm. are people that have a certain level of intellect that is beyond mine. There are people who can do things that are, in fact, without value, superior to what I can do. There's things you can do. There's things I can do. We have differences. Mm -hmm. And once we realize we are one, we value, respect, and honor those differences. And we seek to live in a, a society that is able to potentially support everyone when they're contributing and being a part of it. That would be an ideal I would hold, and I could name that. But when we think sameness is required for dignity and for to have a sense of the inherent value of each person, that they must be the same, we don't get there by elevating the others. We get there by destroying the ones above. That's the only way that can work. Um, and so you start to get this really, really destructive, um, kind of envy based, uh, hateful thing, which turns genocidal at some point. Um, and so I think it's actually quite dangerous and it needs to be understood. And there are people who are talking about the dangers of these kind of ideologies pretty well. Um, but this goes back to what I'm kind of orbiting around here is there is a there is an ethos, but it's not really defined. And it, to me, looks very childish. Like it looks materialistic. It looks like it locates the value of life in how much stuff I have and how much material gain I have and how much luxury and ease I have. And I personally don't even think those things are valuable. I don't think having a Louis Vuitton bag holds any value for a good life. I think making a world where everybody can have a Louis Vuitton bag and they're all going in and like finally getting their Louis Vuitton bag. So now I'm valuable places value on something that is completely valueless. There is no value in having a fucking luxury car. There is no value on these things. They are, in my opinion, idol worship. And they're, they're actually, yeah, they're, they're, they're just it. And so in this thing of like, these people have been held back from having this stuff. I'm like, yeah, they've been held back from, placing value on garbage. Great. Like, like you can be happy and have an amazing life and have no material possession. I mean, you can look at philosophy like Diogenes. Um, have you heard of him? Yeah. 
Yeah. So like dude gets rid of the cup in the final days of his life and says, I've had a cup right here with my hands. I have a bowl right here making a bowl out of his hands. And so he's happy to get rid of his final possession, sleeps in a barrel for any of the people that might, you know, hear this, that don't know about him. He was a philosopher whose core was to live like a dog and essentially mm -hmm. the most natural way to sleep in the sun, to eat when he wanted to pee in public, have sex in public, just be completely wild and free. And that was his, and legend says, and I don't know if this is even possible that he held his breath till he died. <laughs> and that was how he, he, he passed away is one day he just decided to hold his breath till death, which I think is just a way of making him even more of a badass. But uh, I, I don't even know if that's possible <laughs> to do. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's a way of materialism saying, at well, its, its core. A, yeah. It's a way of saying like, that's where we get to. But first we have to say, do you have a core of value here? And what is it? Mm -hmm. Because here's an example, a counterpoint to materialism um, that says that any human that's alive could have dignity, value, and live an elevated life. And so if you're an activist based on um, Senec, which is what Diogenes was, he was a Senec. Um, if you have your philosophy based on that at the core, which again comes from my education, which says, what's the philosophy undergirding this? What's the, what is, what do they say the good life is? What do they say a human is? What do they say reality is? And how do they then define a project within it? These things don't even have the ability to self-inspect that. They make assumptions about that, which many people do. Many people can't go to their philosophical roots and look at how they're building these things. So this kind of entity does have at its core from what I can observe a materialistic uh, approach that the good life is about everybody having all their material needs met. The good life is about never having to go without. It's about not being oppressed in a sense of not having to be deprived of material goods. At mm -hmm. least it has something about that as a feature that's dominant. Mm -hmm. And that the way that we rectify everything is everybody should have access to all material things that are possible without realizing that there's no way to make something a, a human right that has material scarcity. <laughs> That's just a literal impossibility. <laughs> so uh, well, if you, yeah. if your ethos is based on materialism and behaviorism, where is there room for the spiritual or the meaning of the human life? Where is, exactly. where is that? And have we, have we walked so far away from that in creating a secular culture that it's that what how do we find a spiritual meaning in a culture that's not explicitly faith based well i would argue that you you are i would say that you are having a spirituality it's just you're unconscious to it and so it's having an impact on you that you can't really grapple with or be aware of or engage with with any real sense of agency and so these people lack an awareness that everything does have a some kind of spirituality in the sense of what a good life is, even if they're not aware of what that comes from. And it has what, uh, and they would probably say, well, no one ever has to experience pain. Everything is going to be good. It's this utopianism. It's like a childish dream. It's it's innocent and and in my opinion, stupid. And it doesn't actually grapple with reality. And it's very... Um, I can look at it on the one hand and say, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. You want to want that. Like if I was talking to a child, you know, they'd be like, why do we have to kill to eat? Why does anyone have to get sick and die? Why does grandma? And it's like, well, now there's a mature side of this, which is like, this is life. And so I think in a lot of ways, you don't 
you don't actually escape spirituality. You just become unaware that you're functioning with one and that it may be extremely regressed and immature and it may be out of your awareness. And that's what I think is happening in this. An one, escape that, from spirituality, escaping an attempt. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not even an escape from it because I think for me, I define spirituality as anything that's in the world of metaphysics. So like, for mm -hmm. example, in platonic terms, it would be like um, a spirit chair exists in my mind before I make it in the world. So I don't think anyone can escape spirituality. What they can escape is a thorough inspection of one that is functional and useful and integrated in a value base that they're conscious of and they're utilizing in a, in a way that's making their life and li live a good life that, that they're aware of and responsible for. I would say, actually, what I think they're escaping is responsibility. People want to reject responsibility to live and they want to be cared for. It's, it's an orgiastic childish approach. It's, mm -hmm. it's, that's the way I see it, but it, it's spirituality is that <laughs> in the sense of that's what they are saying in, as I define it is the world of metaphysics and some sense of philosophy and values is what I'm throwing into that kind of mm -hmm. thing. But mm -hmm. if you don't define it, if you don't, well, you end up with what we have now, which is people kind of like the, I hate this phrase, but you hear the meat Legos, you know, <laughs> thinking of people as what we're, you know, the, the cosmetic procedures that are be de being done in the name of gender, for instance, just thinking right. about people as just very interchangeable parts and cut this off and trim that off and enhance this. And it's yeah, very I mean, materialistic. Yeah. 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 It's very, um, yeah, I see what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It has this, um, not materialistic in the sense of like, um, like owning gaining. possessions. Yeah. It's not about owning possessions. It's about that reality is primarily all about atoms and getting mm -hmm. things in this very structured thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that even that stuff gets into like, there's no, it, it, it actually reveals the point I think I was trying to make earlier in our discussion, which is that this ideology's function as I can see it, and I think it's worth discussing. And I think I would love to engage in dialogue with anybody who sees it differently, because I think if we slow down and look at this and can have a dialogue, mm -hmm. this kind of philosophy, the gender philosophy that's, that's prevalent within mainstream psychology that's very supportive of the trans ideology um it doesn't have any logic coherency and i've heard it said that it actually makes it so that there is only one inherent valid gender and that is trans and that all others are mm -hmm. invalid and not inherent but if we look at how it functions for me, at least it looks like it, it operates in a constructionist perspective, okay. which is meaning is constructed and made by us and has no inherent value or has no inherent meaning. And that at the same time, it has a um, kind of um, essential essentialist mm -hmm. stance, mm -hmm. which is that there are certain things that are essential to reality that exist kind of like a very early on, like platonic or platonic platonic essentialist perspective, which is this idea that things have inherent essence. Mm -hmm. And so it operates from constructionist and essence at the same time in paradoxical, like it can't be both. 
and yet it operates as though it is. So it says like gender is a construct and I am inherently trans. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. are, you are a constructed cisgender. And the only reason that you are, is you constructed it. There was nothing essential to it, mm -hmm. but I have an essential gender that must, my now must prevail over my physical body because it's what I feel. And it places mm -hmm. these feelings as central to the meaning, but then paradoxically ties them to some kind of essence. And so it doesn't even have philosophical consistency. Yeah, yeah, it's inherently um, it's inherently antithetical to its own philosophical branches, which are opposed to each other, and yet it operates from both. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'd be interested if anyone ever could discuss it that way. Is just be like, what do you, am I wrong? Like, what am I missing here? Because I've mm -hmm. I think I'm seeing this happen. What you again get though is people who will cherry pick what others have said and they'll avoid where others have said things that are and and this is essentially what I found in in Mormonism is it reveals itself that someone has a um what Eric Fromm would say is their their faith includes that it is virtuous to maintain the belief and it is a sin to not maintain the belief. And so when you're interacting with somebody from a cult perspective or an ideological uh framework where they've been captured by it. The belief itself is virtuous. So questioning the belief or challenging the belief becomes a sin. And mm -hmm. once you have that in place, you've got heresy. So for example, if I say um, all human lives have dignity, then someone would say, well, then are you saying that black lives don't matter? And now you're back on this thing where the questioning their statement in any way now is a sin. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens with, are you saying these children's lives don't matter? And in fact, I am saying black lives matter. I am saying trans lives matter in the sense that human children, and especially that would be the focus, they matter so much that we need to have conversations about this and we need to mm -hmm. be able to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's that. so that's what you interact with. And when you interact with that, you're not really having a dialogue where the question is ever being discussed. What you have is a circular, um, hostile engagement that's more like a battle between people mm -hmm. and so this is the issue that we get against when we come up against ideological um positions and when it is immoral to hold certain positions or it is immoral to ask certain questions and so that's again the structure that i think we have to come to be able to discuss if we want to have mm -hmm. conversations with people that hold differences is you have to be able to say it looks like me holding a position or questioning your ideas is itself a sin. And I think that word's fine to use. I think it describes mm -hmm. it well. Um, and then you can look at, is that the case? Is it the case that my uh, position or my interest in questioning what's happening here is itself a sin? And are we actually having a dialogue or are you just operating to, like, what are we doing? And I think, again, mm -hmm. this is from the Gestalt therapy perspective is looking at um, the process between two people at all times and being really clear about it so that, and that would assume again, that you're even with a person who'd be willing at all to do that kind of a thing. Well, you're kind of, you're still describing a dynamic where one person is attempting to engage in good faith and the other isn't. So that's you have unbalanced. To, yeah. But yeah. when you talk about the classical liberal perspective uh, and the naivete of the open-minded good faith perspective, um, how do you how do you open your mind to the fact that you may be engaging with someone in bad faith, but retain your openness, but retain your, um, the, the, the basis of your respect for other human beings. So how well, do you, how do you integrate that? Well, it's kind of like, I think for me anyway, my personal way of doing it is 
you have to have some kind of paradoxical within liberalism is conservatism within conservatism is a certain amount of liberalism it's kind of like the yin and the yang and and in that stance in order to preserve a liberal stance you have to have some kind of structure that protects it and um for me that would be to say uh looking at the process that's happening and having enough um, world life experience and knowing enough about how people are to be able to discuss what's happening mm -hmm. and name the process so that you don't get sucked into the content. And so if someone's trying to rational, ra mm -hmm. make a rational argument, argument, um, that's designed to trick you or, or snare you up or attack your inherent dignity or make the argument that you are invalid to discuss something because of who you are at the core. That's not looking at your discussion, but looking at who you are, mm -hmm. then you need to be able to name those things. Because again, this is, you know, I talked about earlier, like we're just reinventing the same wheel, which is to take away your human dignity. Well, one of the other ways is to say, only I get to speak the truth. I am anointed by God. And that mm -hmm. used to be the priesthood. If you were the priests, you got mm -hmm. to read the Bible and you got to say what was real. And now today it is the blood of Christ is oppression. So however much oppression you have is how much virtue you have. And a person who doesn't is inherently a sinner. So if someone is talking to me as a priest to a sinner, I'm going to name that and I'm not going to continue to engage it and, and act like it's not happening. Mm -hmm. So if a person is saying something like, you know, well, your, your privilege, et cetera, um, precludes you from, uh, understanding this and, uh, and, 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 and only I can basically speak to the reality, then I'll be like, well, I'm not sure I would want to discuss that directly and be like, as it stands, it sounds like, and I would try to represent it as accurately as possible to them. It sounds like, as as you see it, we're not able to have a conversation because the only thing that could happen here is I could adopt your view because I am inherently incapable <laughs> of learning anything because of my life experience that's different, which again, I totally disagree with that idea. I think I've... I think people have massive ability to have empathy and care for each other's perspectives. I don't think we have to be the same to be able to appreciate each other. And I think that we can connect and and also at the same time, we never know what anybody's experience is, no matter how similar or dissimilar they are, it remains uniquely theirs. And the stance is a humble, loving openness to that that sense of wonder that this person's experience is theirs. It's mm -hmm. unique to them. And so this idea that I I get to speak for God and you get to be corrected is at the core of that conversation. And so I think that kind of dynamic the way that you would engage is to understand that the, first that not every conversation is friendly, understand that some people have no interest in any type of real connection or dialogue, and that you need to be assessing and making sense of that and the process and be able to name it and, and not go further until you've addressed that fundamental issue. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like me holding any question is evil, and that looks like heresy to me. It looks like mm -hmm. you have God's truth. And anything I do to question it is is evil. Mm -hmm. It means it means that I'm, and and I mean they define it this way that you know the systems of oppression maintain themselves. So it takes on like it basically they create a new colloquial devil, and mm -hmm. and the influence of the devil is at play mm -hmm. in anything that disagrees with them. But it, again, like all these things have their analog. Mm -hmm. 
No, the yeah. metaphors, the comparison to a church, uh, it, I hear these a lot that this is like a religion. And I wonder if it's so much that it's like a religion or if it's more that this process has been used by religions. And that's a yeah. place where people are more familiar with experiencing this kind of high control, rigid, um, as you say, toxic dynamic. And um, in this case, if if you carry the metaphor uh, forward I mean, or, or go through it, who is the church leader? Who are the church leaders making people feel this way? Who's the what's the Vatican of social justice? What's the, the, the source who is creating and perpetuating this? Is well, it coming from somewhere? I mean, we, you, do you have a thought on why this has been imposed throughout these institutions? I think we have templates. I think that it, it's, um, we can look at the Chinese cultural revolution and we can say that, you know, um, fifth generational warfare, whatever we want to call it, being able to take over and control people is something that humans have always done. And there's mm -hmm. always a death struggle for resource. And that by shaping how humans think, how they think about their history, we destroy the history and then we can take them where we need them to go. Mm -hmm. So they don't have roots to any type of cultural or sense of dignity and value. And when the nuclear bomb enters the playing board on the human game, uh, it creates a method where direct force is is total annihilation of the human species. And so total force can't be used among nations that hold nuclear warfare power. And then we look at, okay, well, then how does modern warfare start to happen? Well, mm -hmm. it can happen if you can disarm a country. So there's huge pressure for countries to disarm. And we can look historically and see that as soon as they disarm nuclear, then they get taken over completely by uh non-nuclear modern warfare um mm -hmm. and you can see that in you know lots of the middle eastern countries that have given up their arms and then mm -hmm. they get destroyed by the us or others and that you know modern conquest through proxy war is currently happening you can look at places that understand this and they stop uh well so when you can't do that when you can't go in you basically it comes down to if i can't kill you with a with a bomb i'll kill you with poison mm -hmm. and so to me the the modern warfare is a spiritual war mm -hmm. in the mind of human beings and that it is done in very systematic understood thoughtful ways um we have agencies that are pumping this stuff in and we have money and all these things behind them we have esg scores mm -hmm. um we have BlackRock, we have Sweet Baby, we have all these little companies that are there. There are lots of people who probably talk about these topics with a lot more knowledge and awareness than I have um, uh, that are looking at how these larger entities are operating. But in simple terms, they're globalists. And these globalists operate without borders, without loyalty, without any concern for any nation. And they use everything and anything they can to gain material uh, control over the human species and um, to degrade human beings and prevent us from uh, our most essential pair bonding to have sexual health and then to create strong families and communities that are resilient um, is the goal. And so any ideology that can tear people apart along gender, race, any difference that they can find and exacerbate to the fullest creates a more weak, manipulatable herd animal that can then be, you know, put in their pod on VR goggles, fed bugs and, and extracted wealth. Like, I mean, literally 
watch the movie the matrix i mean it's 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 they'll suck your energy out from uh, your pod i mean that's so that's my view of 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 the goal of these groups and they're they have studied real human psychology they're not afraid to accept like the actual truth i mean and they study the dark side of it like how to break mm-hmm. a person down mm-hmm. they study um you know enhanced interrogation techniques how to uh implement propaganda um uh, agendas that completely erase a person's sense of any self and so they know how to do that and they know how to use social pressures they know how to weaponize sex in order to you know you look at how men are uh very depressed and killing themselves and alone mm-hmm. and isolated because women have been trained to hate them through feminism uh in its modern iteration i have no issue with many of the earlier iterations of it um for the record mm-hmm. uh but these are these are kind of the things that um i you know, this attack on pair bonding that you're talking about that really resonates for me with a lot of the things we're seeing with regard to to gender and yeah the yeah. it's there's the war of the sexes that's been going on yeah, forever and the way that yeah. pornography has turned men uh away from women and right. the way that feminism is turning women away from men right well I it's like that... you interpret every difference between men and women as this person is abusing me i mean mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm, not gonna mm-hmm. engender good feelings if mm-hmm. if you look at this person's able to has achieved more than me and they've done it because they've held me back it's not going to be the same functional thing as this person worked so hard and sacrificed to please me and build a world that's comfortable for me mm-hmm. so that I would be happy, which is much more to the point of, I think, what motivates men is we're very motivated to do things that will make women like us mm-hmm. because women come with an inherent attractiveness in that their body is attractive. Men, what makes us attractive is much more about our behaviors. And so when you put a man in uh, what I would call is like a behavior burqa, it's mm. making him take up less space. It's making him appear ugly to women, be less bold, be less risk-taking, be less um, assertive and aggressive and mm. and and provisioning and protecting. And that makes him basically be a castrated, ugly version of himself mm. that women won't like. And then anytime he attempts to do the things that would make him attractive to women, label those as toxic and make women see that as bad, even though their nature demands it, they're going to mentally be rejecting it. and it's creating it's to me it's just a very systematic takedown of the natural way of and then give men a uh digital version of release where they're completely isolated disconnected alone and masturbating to pixels on a screen mm-hmm. in order to feel some sense of love and connection mm-hmm. and, which takes away the last bit of incentive that they would have to try well it it, it definitely doesn't let the tire inflate it lets a huge leak be in it and mm-hmm. every time their energy gains it can just be released mm-hmm. with and and usually you know for a man uh getting to the point where there was sexual uh achievement would be require a great deal of effort and i mean we know this like for a woman if she says i'm ready to have sex there's a line of men out the door Mm -hmm. if a man says i'm ready to have sex it's like crickets crickets good luck um and so yeah so again yeah i think there's a systematic assault on the human spirit that Mm -hmm. is done in fifth generational warfare in order to uh Basically, I mean, it can get to a point where your entire society can collapse and then be literally taken over at a certain point. Um, so it doesn't ever have to be one church. Mm-hmm. Um, it operates better if it isn't. Uh, these things don't have to be some kind of 
overly complicated conspiracy. It can really just be one hand washes the other. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that politics is a modern day bad religion. I think all politics. So sorry for anybody who's on any side of this. I think all of the political spectrum is a bad religion. I think that it operates as a religion. It operates in the same way as some of these other ideologies. And that it's essentially that, you know, organized crime got powerful enough that it became legitimized by unifying itself into the government. It's pretty obvious to me that in the 60s, they killed everybody that was potentially an issue to it and that it was done by, it looks very obvious to have been the CIA. And that goes to Malcolm X, uh, Kennedy, um, Martin Luther King, uh, later on Fred Hampton, all of these different leaders that were potentially unifying people, bringing people together, they weren't allowed to persist. And, you know, you can look at more modern things like um, in 2008, you had um, the Occupy Wall Street movement, and that had focused on bankers and mm -hmm. centralized control. Mm -hmm. And then you have massive amounts of increase of uh, propaganda, in my opinion, but through, you know, our mainstream media outlets dividing people along the lines of race and gender and creating this massive, massive divisions within uh, the left. And now it's hilarious because you have this, this just ridiculous parody of what like a left rebel used to be as this like pharmaceutical bank loving war loving group. That's like mm -hmm. championing mm -hmm. the conflict in Ukraine, championing pumping money into the Israel Palestine conflict, championing war, championing big pharma, championing banks because they put gay lipstick on it. And it's like, mm -hmm. well, there's always going to be the lipstick of the day to put on the pig, but you got to understand if it's war, if it's banks, if it's, if it's centralized control of sovereign people, it's mm -hmm. not liberalism. It's, it's, it's just fascist control. Mm -hmm. It's totally so. subverted. It's like the, um, the F the man group is let the, let's like, go the man. We love yeah, the man. Yeah. 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 It, it's uh people say instead of rage against the machine is rage for the machine. Rage you know? for the machine. That's right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's so true. Um, how, how have you seen this? I guess what's, what's been your observation as a practicing therapist over the course of your career? How has this shown up? And have you felt like you are uh, among colleagues and peers who are seeing this the same way? Have you felt like you're the lone voice inside of the, with the in-group next to you, who who's just like in the church? Or what's that experience been like? It's been very, very painful. It, it really, you know, due to the kind of traumatizing, difficult experience I had leaving the in-group of Mormonism, I had a lot of fear. I started to realize that the behaviors mimicked each other. And again, whether you agree with them or not, and some of the kind of goals and values of people who aren't as sophisticated and aware of how this functions, which are many of my friends, uh, they were the same reactions I had in Mormonism, that these people are actually just good people. Like a lot of people who are, I believe fundamentally in the goodness of humanity. And that extends to when I'm in disagreement with people. Uh, and so many of the people I saw in Mormonism that devoutly believed it are just good, regular humans that want to live a happy life. And they, they really firmly believe, uh, a, a, a kind of an ideological thing that is 
again, it's a sin for them to question it. And so I see the same thing within a lot of these groups is they're people I have a lot of respect for. They're very intelligent people. They are not dumb. I think it's it's not in your favor to start insulting and degrading people. What I think helps people is to understand that all of us are much more easily manipulated than we think. All of us are a lot more emotional than we think. And all of us make decisions based on um, organizing around the needs we have more than we do so rationally. And so there's a need that the person has to maintain the belief system they have. And oftentimes that comes with maintaining status and connection to their in-group, which mm -hmm. is extremely vital for their survival. And they're not willing to even open up questioning to it because of the existential distress that it would cause and the potential loss of community and bonding and, and what I would call a social truth. And social truths do not get critiqued in question. They get maintained and they get shown sovereignty and fealty to it. You say, I believe the good thing. And everyone says, he believes the good thing. He's good. We're all good. Rah, rah. Um, so I want to say all that first and then just say, you know, so therefore leaving it is to choose to walk a path of being misunderstood by people mm -hmm. that you understand. Mm -hmm. And this is the difficulty of outgrowing an ideology is that you completely understand and care for these people. They don't understand you and they can't because they don't yet have the ability to set aside whatever functional need they have that would allow them to start to question these things and to take you in. And so they can really, they're limited in the way they can interact with you. Um, that being the case, in my own personal work, having become a person who has what I believe is a deeper understanding of the society, the culture, the world at large, and these issues it's enhanced my ability to work with people because I'm not operating within a more confined, narrow, uh, prescriptive, interpretive worldview that everyone is bad for X, Y, Z reason. It lets me maintain my Gestalt therapy roots, which is that people are uh, basically an organism that's trying to meet its needs within its environment by making meaning of mm -hmm. the world around it so that you can resolve needs. And so that stance is even more enhanced. I have no interest in in making people conform or or rebel against society. I have interest in people becoming more aware mm -hmm. so that they can have more agency and more choices in their life. And they may do the same thing, but they can live a more dignified, uh, responsible life. Mm -hmm. And I've seen many, uh, I have a lot of men in my practice that I think I've been uniquely capable of helping and I think I've been able to help a lot of women as well, because I don't think that it serves people to identify themselves as a victim and a powerless pawn in a larger system. And I think people are encouraged to identify this way, or they're encouraged to identify as the machine. And since I don't uh, inherently identify my clients as either of those, I believe I serve both parties better and that I've been able to um, support the project I have, which is built in, again, humanistic roots that all people have inherent human value. There is no one true meaning of life. There's only meanings we make to survive. And there are cultural meanings that we are uh, taught to participate in in order to maintain connection, which is then again to survive. And we need to be able to question those. We need to be able to make those flexible and work with them and, and update them while maintaining some of the structure that exists. Uh, and so I... Yeah. So is, as far as it's affected my my practice, I'd say I'm just getting better and better at what mm -hmm. I do. And that's always my goal. And uh, in the personal issues are, are challenging. I've um, resigned positions of uh, that, that I worked very hard to achieve in mm -hmm. certain 
institutions um, because I didn't feel that I was able to work in a way that could acknowledge my stance and maintain um, integrity to the, the method that I endeavored to teach. Simply put, I say it this way, if you're a sandwich shop and people who want to end world hunger take over the focus and they do it so much that you no longer are teaching how to make sandwiches, you don't get to do either. Now you don't get to make sandwiches or end world hunger. And so we have to maintain integrity to the craft before people can apply it in any way. Mm -hmm. And so that that is still part of my goal. I still believe very much so in my humanistic roots and my existential roots and my gestalt therapy application. I think it's an amazing method of psychotherapy and I'm dedicated to continue its advancement and maintain its integrity mm -hmm. from people that would um, instrumentally use it as a method of implementing a kind of neo-Marxist um, kind of communistic fascist totalitarian anti-human agenda, <laughs> which is what I see this stuff as. Do you have any optimism for the future? Yeah, because I think that humans, um, it's kind of like, you know, when I grew up in Mormonism, everybody didn't like gay people. And then enough people knew gay people and they just stopped caring about how people had sex. And they're like, oh, they're just, you know, these are just people, whatever. I think that's been weaponized against its own community now. And they're using it to brand horrible things. So I, I don't think that that's necessarily always a linear progression, but um I think once enough people kind of start speaking and gaining their spine and talking about what's happening and are willing to stand their ground, at some point it's going to become obvious that this stuff was the reasonable approach. I mean, it's going to be pretty obvious to say like, hey, don't mutilate children's genitals. That's going to be a pretty reasonable stance, you know? Mm -hmm. Hey, don't dump all of our tax money and enslave generations of, of America in never-ending foreign wars. It's pretty, you know, these are not controversial stances to take. I think history tends to, if it, you know, it is, it is controlled and I think narratives are controlled, but I do think it's, it becomes easy to look back on things and the courageous people get vindicated. So I have a lot of hope for humanity. I think more and more people every day are waking up. And I think what they're up against these people is they're up against human nature and human experience. And I think when you gain a spiritual core of your own and you start to live and do things that you believe are correct and you do it from an actual place of love and you actually do it from a place of a thoughtful, like, I don't think my ideas suck. So um, if we're talking about ideas, I'm happy to put them forward. And if you think I suck, well, that's kind of your problem. I'm not really that concerned about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so I do have a lot of hope that, you know, because I think we've got the better, uh, the better playbook, because we've got the competence, we've got the things that work, the people that actually work hard to gain ability to do things, they actually can't be destroyed as easily as somebody who truly actually is dominating other people with fear and shame and control and threats and punishments that doesn't work because it only has one trick. And once the trick's over, what do you do? You know, now, now people have to go back to work again because now mm -hmm. we're on the throne and then you kill them all. I mean, that's what we see in the historical pattern. The revolutionary group realizes, oh, wait, we actually don't have any skill. Oh, we did kill all the farmers. Well, looks like we're all going to starve and die now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, well, I really, I really appreciate your analysis. I think that it's, you've laid things out in a really clear way and given me some new things to think about. And do you do any writing or any speaking online where people could find your work? 
Uh, I'm not currently publishing anything. I've done some writing in the past. I've done some public speaking. Um, funny enough, I think it's evolved quite a bit. I wouldn't really agree with some of the stuff I was saying in the past. I was doing um, some panels at um, the Penny Arcade Expo, like the video gaming packs. Oh. Um, my friend got us in on that, but I have, you know, I've evolved a lot uh, <laughs> since then. So I wouldn't probably um, stand by that stuff, but uh yeah, I'm not currently writing on it. I've I've been doing some more kind of gestalt and personal stuff on a podcast called Infants on Thrones. Uh, Infants it's a, on Thrones? Yeah, it's a, a guy who uh, mainly was focused around ex-Mormon experience or, or post-Mormon experiences. Um, so there's a few, there's a series of, it's more personal um, mm -hmm. about me and just kind of some of these things. I haven't gone in as explicitly as this, mm -hmm. um, but it informs some of the thinking that comes in there. Well, if you have any links that you want to share, I'd be happy to put them under this video once I put this out so people can follow that okay. or or any, um, yeah. if you want to direct people to your site. Okay, yeah. yeah. It's cool. been really great to talk with you. Do you think there's anything that we didn't touch on that you want to make sure you hit? No, I don't, nothing offhand. <laughs> I mean, I think I talked pretty thoroughly on the overview that I think is really crucial for people. Yeah. And again, I just think, you know, just to reiterate, if we talk about these things and if you can have an honest dialogue, well, first you need to analyze what kind of interaction you're having and look at the process of how someone's approaching you and stay with mm -hmm. that process. But if you can get to the discussion and you can actually have one, then you can, you can be, uh, you can, I think we can connect. I think demonstrating understanding and I, I have hope for that. And then I also think people need to be able to analyze how people are orienting toward them and if it's toxic or not. Mm -hmm. And so those are the kind of things that I think I wanted to lay out that I, that I look at. And I think, you know, these are just, these are human issues. These are human problems. We, we try to define and control reality to be able to shape society to serve us and people who are not good people will do this. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to, you, at some point, if you want to stand up against it, you have to be willing to get out there and go after it. So I think, yeah. So it's a beginning. I mean, maybe we can talk more in the future. Yeah. If, I would, I'd and, love to maybe have a conversation with you about practical steps to analyze com the, that, those dynamics. That would so be something maybe I'd be interested that. in maybe writing. I've thought about that okay. for a long time is like just an analysis of like um, some of these things, making them very like specific and yeah. laid out. Just um, really direct. Like yeah, like creating a priestly cl class that gets to mm -hmm. define reality and and then uh, heresy and, you know, some of these taking things off of the realm of discussion, mm -hmm. making it a sin to question them when faith, when having faith in a topic itself is a virtue then and then and then, mm -hmm. yeah, just these different topics that mm -hmm. I've gathered around. I think it's useful to have them very clearly delineated. Um, so yeah, I think I there's think so value too. in that. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much for joining me. I really have enjoyed this conversation a lot. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Yeah.